Welcome to this time of worship from Trinity Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. Today's message is from our pastor, Dr. Buckner Fanning. Let this message enlighten you, brighten your day, and bring you closer to God. Now enjoy today's message from Dr. Buckner Fanning. Now let's remain standing, and interestingly enough, we're going to read a passage of Scripture that talks about that marvelous, wonderful day when we all go to be with the Lord. The words on your bulletin, the Scripture we will read in unison, together we read, beginning in Revelation, these words, together. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Isn't that a marvelous promise? Join hands and hearts together. Dear God, we come to praise you and to thank you. We come to thank you for coming in person to this world and through your Son, purchasing us by his sacrifice, eternal life, and a place in heaven forever with you. And we thank you for the inclusiveness of your love, that people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, from all nations, all tongues, all languages, all races. We thank you, God, that you are an inclusive God, reaching out to love the whole world and calling them to yourself. We thank you, dear Lord, and praise you for your love for us. All sinners saved by your grace. We pray, Father, for those who are hurting today. Wherever the hurt might be, in body or mind or spirit or home life or business or relationships, tensions with friends, whatever it might be, dear God, you're the healer of all broken things and all hurting things. So may your spirit reach in and touch each of our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and our relationships and help us to be the kind of person you want us to be, to be your representatives in this world, a world that so desperately needs salt and light. May they have that salt and that light through us. We ask in your loving name, amen. Tell you story about a young man who just started preaching and uh, he was just as nervous as he could be and that's normal and nobody believes this but let me tell you before God it's the truth I'm always nervous I've been doing this now for 50 years and I still get nervous and I would really get nervous if I didn't get nervous uh, <laughs> but uh, people shake my hand for church they say my your hands are cold and I say well they've been in front of the air conditioner you know Really, they're just, I'm just nervous. And uh, because it's important what we're trying to say. And uh, it's important to our lives. And there may be someone here who's 
as Robert Shaw, the famous Robert Shaw Corral, even in his latter years, was asked why he was still so enthusiastic about leading, conducting, and uh, playing and creating music for people. And he said, because there are some people who will be there who will be hearing it for the first time. And there will be other people there who will be hearing it for the last time. So we don't know. So I want to try this morning to say some things that I hope the Lord would use. But I'm nervous like that young man was who got up in a small church on Sunday morning and he wanted to preach on the feeding of the 5,000. And he got mixed up. I have got mixed up. Every preacher has gotten mixed up. Right, Dr. David? All of us have at times, you know, kind of gotten things messed around. I know I've called uh, Elijah Isaiah. And I've talked about Jesus wearing a thorny crown. Uh, Martha said, mm, that sounded right, but that wasn't quite it. The crown of thorns, isn't it? Well, uh, this young man got up, and he was going to preach on the feeding of the 5,000. He said there were, I had, he had 5,000 loaves and 2,000 fish to feed 500 people. <laughs> well, everybody laughed, but there was one man on the third row that just kept laughing all through the service. He just put his head down and just laughing and laughing. Threw that young preacher off. He was having a hard enough time as it was. And when you've made a mistake and you try to get it back, you just don't. I mean, you're, you're swimming upstream, and you might as well just shut it down, say amen, go beat the Methodist to the cafeteria, and get, get, it, get it over with. But he plowed right on. God bless him. He stayed with it. So he decided the next Sunday that, he would, that he would, uh, he'd correct it, and he'd preach on the feeding of the 5,000, and this time he would get it correct. Do it right. And so uh, he said there were five loaves and two fish, and he fed 5,000 people. And uh, looked down at that man that laughed so hard and said, can you beat that? Can you do that? He said, sure, I could do that with all the fish and the bread you had left over from last Sunday. <laughs> so... So I, I, this is not really a very homiletical uh, sermon in one sense, but last Sunday I, I was amazed at the response uh, and uh, affirmed by it and, and challenged by it, to a degree uh, perplexed by it, because we talked about the nature and character of God and why God doesn't do things in a world where so many horrible, vile, detestable things are taking place people killing other people, events taking place that uh, hurt people and hurt innocent lives. Uh, where is God when all of this is going on? Why doesn't God do something? And uh, I spoke some about the fact that, that God created us in his own image, not physical image because God is not physical, he is spirit, but he created us in his own image spiritually. He created us with a mind. He created us with volition. He created us with spirit. He breathed into us the breath of life, his breath, and we became living souls. Living souls carried around in living bodies. And uh, now I talk about how God is, a, is with us in this arena. He's not some chess master moving us around on a chessboard and knocking us over uh, but that he is in the game with us. He is not, as Tennyson said, and uh, I believe it was Sartre Sartus, that uh, 
He's above the heavens, above it all, unmoved by human tears and human cries. Uh, he is uh, the unmoved mover. That's not so. Not so. God is a part of this. God is in all things. You remember that Romans 8:28 we talked about? We quote it. For God works all things together for good to them that love him, to them who are called according to his purpose. Well, that really says, when you get into the language of it and, and the way it was written, it says, for God is in all things, working them together for good to them that love the Lord. Where is God when all of the bad things are going on? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he stop it? Why does it? Well, the only way he could do it, as I talked about last week, would be to turn us into robots. In other words, take us out of being created in his image. Make us robots. Then you would have no accidents. You would have no crime. You would have no mistakes made. You would have no innocent people hurt. But that would ruin the creation of God. God created the world, created it with a moral order. He created it with a spiritual order. And the breaking of that brings about consequences that are disastrous in our lives and often disastrous in the lives of other and innocent people. So let me say just a word here because I want to to talk about Jesus, but I want you to understand kind of where he's coming from and how he's here. And we need a lot more time, and I need a lot more talent to do it, but I'm going to try. Imagine for a moment, try to picture, try to picture infinity. Picture a line up here. Draw a line that goes from, the Bible says alpha and omega. That means in English A to Z. But listen, God was before Alpha and after Omega. God has neither beginning nor ending. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is infinite. Now, it is hard for us earthbound people to comprehend infinity. Our minds just cannot do that. But try to imagine. Here is God. God is yesterday. God is today. God is tomorrow. God is forever. God is not living right now where we are in 1999. He's not here. He doesn't have a calendar. He's not here in 1999 exclusively. He's already in 2099 and 3099 and 10,099 and all of the time we're living, this little bleak of time in the light of eternity, all of that to God is history. He already knows. He knew from the foundation of the world way back in the millions of years when the galaxies were being created and then when he created man, he knew what man was going to do. He knew man was going to disobey, disobey because he had created him with the capacity to say no to God, to say no to the word of God, and he did. He said no. He decided to go his way. So the consequences fell out on his family and on everybody else and into the bloodstream of mankind came that virus of disobedience and rejection to God. So what did God do? He knew what he was going to do. He planned it from, the scripture says, before the foundation of the world. That means millions and millions of years ago. So what did he do? At creation, what did he do? What came into the life we live? Here he is up here. Here we are down here in the Edens of life. The ups and the downs and the failures and the fears and all the stuff that goes on in our lives. Okay, what did God do? It says, and God breathed, God's spirit breathed over the face of the deep, and he brought order out of chaos. God's spirit came into the world 
and begin to work horizontally on the plane where you and I live. The Spirit of God revealing to man the nature and character of God. God wanting to get his word to them. God wanting to get the word to them that he loves them and that the reason he gave them the law was not to punish them or to hurt them or to keep them from having a good time. He gave them that so that life would be good. Wouldn't life be wonderful if we kept the Ten Commandments? Just from a pragmatic standpoint, wouldn't the world be in a terrific shape if we just kept the Ten Commandments? But we don't. We break them not only in our minds and hearts and ours, our attitudes and our desires, we actually break them. And, but what's God doing? God is here in the midst of that saying, okay, that's happened. Now here you can come out of that. I will be with you. I will forgive you. He begins to work through his spirit, through, through the patriarchs, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Moses, through Joshua, through Isaiah. Then he gets to all through history. God's spirit has been at work revealing the nature and the character of God, trying to help us understand more about God. Now, God isn't changing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he knows that we're slow learners. So he's right down here with us through the presence of his spirit and his servants, the men and the women of the Bible, whom God's spirit used to proclaim his word to us. He is down here working and revealing God to us. Now, the word reveal, so many of us think of it as, as a vertical revelation from God. It's primarily a horizontal relationship from God. Revelation really means like, it's a word that uh, a, a, a woman or a man, when you lay the co covers back on the bed, you lay it back. That's revealing it. It's not just something that happens miraculously from above. It's something that takes place where we are, where God kind of unfolds it, reveals it, revealing more and more of himself. We were trying to get on to it. We knew very little about it. There is, and you'll never understand the Bible if you don't understand this, progressive revelation. Progressive because we were slow to catch on. He kept revealing himself, trying to reveal more and more of himself all through the scripture, all through the scripture. Now, I believe, maybe some people do not, but you see, I believe that even in those thousands and thousands of years when God's spirit was working horizontally through the patriarchs, prophets, judges, and all of those people in the Hebrew Bible, I believe there were some pre-incarnate expressions of Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus came in person before he came as a baby in Bethlehem. I believe he came in the form of Melchizedek, which is a miraculous, marvelous story in the scriptures. I wonder where he came from, where he went. Abraham paid tithes to him. Melchizedek, who was he? Move with me to the fiery furnace where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace. Been thrown there because they were worshiping God. And the king wanted to know what was happening to them. Had they been incinerated? And it was so hot that even some of the men who thrown them in there were burned to death. And they looked in there and they said, wait a minute. Didn't we put just three people in there? Yes. Well, there's a fourth person in there. There's four people. One of them said, he looks like unto the Son of God. In the fiery furnace, three men standing up for God. I personally believe Jesus showed up in person. 
And when they came out, they were unscorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. And then, as Paul tells us, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. Came in person. And when he came to Bethlehem, born of a virgin, spent those first years of his life in the carpenter shop, 30 years working there, and then he started his ministry at 30 years of age. The Gospel of Mark, Jesus was baptized. This is in the first chapter. He was baptized and had gone through the 40 days of temptation. And then the 14th verse says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, now here it is, get this, proclaiming the good news of God. He came telling us good news about God because he is God. He came in person. He is the personification of God. He is the incarnation of God. God himself to tell people what he's like. Better than that, to show people what he is like. Now, maybe this will help some understand what I'm trying to say. Picture yourself in a dark room. No windows, no outside lights. Dark room. And along comes an Abraham. And he knocks a hole in the wall over there and the little light comes in. And they say, hey, I understand it better. Uh, I see it a little more. I understand it. And then Isaac, King Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Ezekiel. Every one of them, knocking a hole in the wall, knocking a hole in the wall, knocking a hole in the wall. Progressive light coming in. We're seeing more. We're understanding more. We're comprehending more of the nature of God. The sun has always been out there. The light has always been there. But we were closed in. And here comes the revelation of God already into this room, potentially. But some prophet, some patriarch opens some door and light comes in. Light comes in. And finally, in the fullness of the time, Jesus comes and tears down the whole building. Tear down this temple, he said, and in three days I will raise it up. All the walls came tumbling down and the full, total, uninhibited light of God came into the world in person in Jesus Christ. And he came to reveal God. Now, if you want to know how God feels about Sick people. How did Jesus feel about sick people? If you want to know how God feels about people who substitute religious ritual for spiritual relationship, what did Jesus say about that? If you want to know about God's attitude toward horrible sinners, Jesus. What was his attitude? 
What was his attitude to Samaritans? Other races, Syrophoenician people. Gentiles. What was, what was Jesus' attitude? Martin Luther was right. You read the Bible forward, but you understand it backwards. And you need to begin with Jesus because he is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed in the fullness of time he came to tell us the good news about God. Now, I had a marvelous experience yesterday. I had the opportunity, the invitation, to speak um, for a big Catholic convention here in San Antonio, the Marion. There were about 3,000 plus in the municipal auditorium, and they had asked me to speak on the subject of God as Father. And I took the same verse of Scripture that I read to you a moment ago from Mark, proclaiming the good news of God is what Jesus came to do. Now, how did he proclaim it? It was not only by what he said, but by what he did. But Jesus' miracles, I believe, were also parables. The parables, someone has said the parable, best definition I ever heard of a parable, is it's a short story with a long meaning. And they had asked me to speak on the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, and really, that's a bad title because the title should be The Parable of a Loving Father. Because the hero of the story is not the boy. The hero of the story is the father. And the father is a picture of God. Jesus is picturing God. In fact, in, in all of the Bible, the hero of the Bible is not Abraham. The hero of the Bible is not David. The hero of the Bible is not the prophets. The hero of the Bible is not Peter, James, and John, and Stephen, and Paul, and Barnabas. The hero of the Bible is God. All of those folks are sinners just like you and I that God used, but the hero of the Bible is God. And Jesus is here. He's in a situation which, which had a, a little hostility was in the room. Uh, tax collectors, 15th chapter of Luke, if you want to turn to the page in the Bible in the book right there in front of you, turn to page 1035. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners. Now tax collectors were people that the Orthodox Jews just detested because they had sold out to the Romans and were taking taxes from the Jewish people. They had, in effect, been traitors, turncoats, and so uh, they, they were just, they were going to hell in a handbasket as far as the Orthodox of the day were concerned. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. My, who wouldn't gather around to hear somebody that believed you could be different? Who wouldn't want to be around somebody who could say, look, you can get up and walk. You can open your eyes and see. Your sins are gone. They're forgiven. Who wouldn't crowd around such a person as that? Why is it that he so often gets crowded out of our churches because of our exclusiveness rather than his inclusiveness? But it happens. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered. It's amazing to me how so many Pharisees spent so much of their time muttering about something. There are just some people who come to church or go to Sunday school or go to a crusade or go anywhere, and they go there with the idea of finding what's wrong. Uh, they, 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 they look for something 
that they can talk about negatively. Like the two women that went to hear the famous violinist, world-famed violinist. And when they left, oh, this one woman was just ecstatic. She said, oh, wasn't that the most magnificent music? It was heavenly, wasn't it? The other woman said, yes, the music was marvelous, but said, I didn't like it after he blew his nose after the third number. Well, there's some people, all they hear is the blowing of a nose. And there are other people who hear the music. But Jesus listened to the music. Here they were muttering about Jesus. And what were they muttering? They were muttering because he welcomed sinners and he ate with them. That was it. He was having dinner with sinners. Aren't you glad? He'll have lunch with you today. We'll invite him back. Because he's become a part of all of our lives as we invite him. He's the unseen guest of every table. That's why we and our family give thanks. Thanks, thanks to him. Well, we are sinners. He's a friend of sinners. And he'll eat with us. Does that just upset the orthodox? So Jesus said, let me tell you some stories. So he told the first story about the sheep. You know that, the lost sheep that wandered off. Now sheep are not are unlike dogs. They can't find their way home. They don't have that instinct. If they wander off from the herd, from the rest of the flock, from the shepherds, they can't find their way home. Somebody has to go out and find them. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling them a picture about what God is like. He said, you have a hundred sheep and lose one of them. Just one of them. What do you do? You leave the 99 in the wilderness, go after the one which is lost until you find it? He said, the same with the kingdom of God. One sinner to repent. All heaven rejoices. Then he, you know, like Jesus came as the good shepherd. We're the wandering sheep. Maybe some wandering sheep are here today. I have wandered in my life. I have wandered. Some of you know my testimony. Some of you know some wandering years there. But the shepherd came. I know not how deep will the waters cross, nor how dark the night the Lord pass through. But I only know that through those deep waters and that dark night, the shepherd found his sheep. He'll find you. Then he told another story about a woman had ten pieces of silver and she lost one of them so she lighted a candle and began to sweep the house getting rid of some of the dust and the dirt and left to find a lost coin my that's a whole sermon on home life isn't it I don't think there's anything needed in America more than for mothers and fathers to bring the light of the world into their home start sweeping out some of the trivia some of the stuff that's contaminating our young people's minds and hearts and sweep it out and the result will be that those little jewels of children will be found by the grace of God. Jesus telling a story comparing himself to a woman. God comparing himself to a woman cleaning house and finding a lost coin. That coin was, when the word lost is used, it doesn't mean that it's annihilated, that it ceases to exist. It means it's just out of place. Just out of place. My wonderful secretary, Judy Pearson, died this last week. We'll be conducting her memorial service tomorrow. And Judy lost, or we say we lost Judy. 
computer because we know where she is. She's not lost. And she's not out of place. She's in the Father's house. And we celebrate that. We will miss her physical presence, but we'll celebrate her presence in the heavenly places of God. Jesus recovers lost things. He lost his self-respect. Lost his temper. Whatever it is. Lost the moral principles that you're dealing with, how to overcome them. Listen, Jesus will come as light, sweep the stuff out of your life, pick you up, shine you off, and use you for his cause. And then the greatest story ever told, and I have preached on it often. Uh, as I have said, if, Jesus, if the Lord had told me I just had one chapter in the Bible that I could preach from for all 50 years, I would have said the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Um, and I say that now after preaching for 50 years. I don't think I could have said that 50 years ago when I started because I was just looking for a sermon anywhere. I, 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 thought, I thought you had to find scripture that no one had ever read. Uh, <laughs> I had to be creative, you know what I mean? So I'd get the Bible and I'd root around over there in Nahum or uh, Zephaniah. How many of you even spell Zephaniah? Zephaniah. And people say, oh, Edmund Buckner, brilliant. He's just a seminary student, but he's preaching some scripture that's not even in the Bible. <laughs> but uh, I finally came to see that the familiar things are the best things because God has used them to bless people's lives. And this story of this boy who uh, he decided he wanted to get away from the father. Man had two sons. Now it's very clear that the man in this story is God and the two sons are you and I. We're both the boys. We're not just one of them. We're a mixture of both. The youthful passions are associated with passion, lust, that sort of thing. Uh, the passions of the older generally are attitudinal. Sin, not that they're exclusive in any person's age, but primarily the impetuous, impatient youth we think of. But what happens to the older ones? They can get sinful in different ways. They can be judgmental and critical and sarcastic and criticizing. Well, they said, uh, the young one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. It was very improper for a Jewish boy to do that. It was disrespectful, though it was lawful. But it was disrespectful. But his father did divide his inheritance to both the older and the younger boy. And you're familiar with the story. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there squandered his wealth in wild living. You know, it, it amazes me why we don't understand why we cannot watch enough television, read enough newspapers to realize that there's nothing romantic. There is nothing glorious. There is nothing exciting about the far country. There's nothing about it. The pleasures of sin you enjoy for a season. saw a news clip about the 200,000 that are at the Wood, Woodstock number two 
whatever they're calling it. And they interviewed one young man who's there's all the tents there and music's loud and thousands and thousands of people. And uh, we interviewed one man, he's a young man, kind of leaning on the outside of his tent, and the interviewer said, uh, you having a good time? He said, oh, yeah, having a good time. He said, did you have a good time last night? He said, yeah, I had a good time last night. What'd you do? He said, I don't remember. You having a good time and don't even remember? That's why our country is a barren desert. It's a desolate wilderness. It's without hope. It's without real friends. It's without self-respect. This boy finally ended up down in the pig pen. Can you imagine the indignity of a Jewish boy having to feed pigs? He says that no one would give him anything. The pigs didn't even give him anything. So he came to his senses. There is a sense in which rebellion against God is moral insanity. Get your head on straight. And he came to himself. Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned. Let me stop right there for a minute. Those three words, I have sinned. If you get your Bible, you'll be surprised as I would when I read this and checked it. The, those, that phrase is used in the scripture only 13 times. Only 13 times do you hear the phrase, I have sinned. Sometimes it's in an, in, uh, an impersonal way. It's in a literary way. Sometimes it's said uh, after they've been caught, like Judas, I have sinned against innocent blood. But you go through all of the 13, and only two were personal confessions. Only two, he said, I have sinned. And one is this story of the boy that Jesus talks about, the younger brother, and the other is King David. When confronted by Nathan the prophet after the illicit affair with Bathsheba, the death of her husband, Uriah, and Nathan the courageous prophet comes and tells this little parable to David and then confronts him and says, you are the man. And what did David do? David didn't blame Bathsheba. David didn't blame Uriah. David didn't blame his wife for not satisfying him. David didn't blame his glands. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Six words that will change anybody's life. I have sinned. But let me tell you, I have known through these 40 years as your pastor, I have known people who would talk to me, who would say to me in a restaurant, at a golf course, at church, one, every, one place or another, Bugner, I need to make some changes in my life. Some things are not going right. I I've done this, or I've done that, and I just know what I ought to do. I, I know I ought to join the church, but I haven't done it. I'm a Christian, but I've never joined the church. I need to get my life right with God. I need to rededicate my life, but I have not done it. Let me, let me warn you, please do not think that because you have thought something and said something that you have done something. Satan will make you believe that because you thought it and maybe even said it to a preacher that you have done something. Look at this story. I have sinned against heaven. 
and in your sight. I'm going to go home and preach this. I'm going to go home and say to this, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight and no more worthy to be called your son. So here is the key verse, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. His intentions, his confession translated into his shoe leather. He walked down that aisle. He walked down that road. He walked up to his father and said, I'm home. Make me a servant, but I'm a home. And the father said, you're not going to come home as a servant. You're going to come home as a son. Put the best robe on the boy, and the best robe belonged to the father. We know that. Put the best robe on him. Put shoes on his feet, because only sons could wear shoes around the house. Slaves went barefooted. My boy's not coming home as a slave. He's coming home as a son. Put shoes on him. Put a ring on his finger. He's back in the family. For this, my son was dead, and he's alive again. Now we're going to kill the fattened calf and have a party because my son has come home. Make the decision, not only in your mind, not only the confession of your heart, but the translation of that confession into your actions and into my actions. He got up and came. Now maybe God is saying something to you this morning. You may be a wandering sheep. You may be a neglected coin. And parenthetically, let me say that there are probably many of you in this room whom the word father is not a wonderful word to you. We hear the word father, we define first emotionally before we define it, define it physiologically. The word is a word of fear to you. Oh, I'd like, I, I really want you to, to look past father that maybe didn't express love to you and look to God who runs down the road to meet you. You notice what he does? He ran down the road. You saw him when he was a long way off. And like Aristotle said, great men never run in public, but Aristotle never met Jesus. Because Jesus said, God the Father. He's telling a story about God himself. He is God. He said he ran down the road to meet him. And he threw his arms around this old boy and he smelled of the pig pen. He had all that stuff all over him. And his shoes were worn out and his clothes were tattered. And the father puts his arms around him and he hugs him and he kisses him. And that's what he said. That's the father we're talking about. Not the father that says, can't you do better? Not the father who says, as one father did to a girl in my friend Browning Ware's church years ago, she came work so hard to get her father's approval and came home with straight A's. And the father looked at it and made this statement. He said, don't they give A pluses in your school? Oh, God is not like that. God is not like that. If you flunk, he puts his arms around you and welcomes you home. Says, come on in. Let's do our homework. You fathers, put your arms around your sons. Both my sons are over 40 years of age. Aren't they, Martha? Is that right? <laughs> Always have to check. 
I still think they're 16, 17, but I, uh, I deny the passing of time. <laughs> but I still put my arms around them and kiss them. And I know it, it, it embarrasses them sometimes. <laughs> but I just tell them they've got to get over it because I'm going to do that. <laughs> and I tell them, I don't just, and I try to show them as well as tell them that I love them. Now, I want you to know that God is a greater father than any father that ever lived on this planet. And any father that is a Christian father wants to emulate the heavenly father. But let me tell you, if you have a bad example in your life, a bad hurt in your life because of your father, let me let you be adopted into the family of God. He puts his arms around you and welcomes you home. We got up. Who wouldn't get up and go to a father like this? And so maybe this is get up time for you. Get up and say, I'm going to make this decision. I've thought about it long enough. I've even prayed about it. I've talked to counselors, staff members, Sunday school teacher friends. I need to do it. Maybe you need to come and make a commitment of your life. Maybe some of you want to come and just kneel and do some business with God alone without talking to me or anybody else. Go back to your seat. That's fine. That's wonderful. That's more important than talking to me anyway. Five thousand times. Or to come say, I want to be a part of a church. I want to be a part of a church that's inclusive and exclusive. Far from being perfect, but desiring to be more like Jesus. That's what we want to do. We want to be just as inclusive as Jesus was. Just as loving as he was. Just as affirming as he was. You can help us do that. Maybe we can help you. We can help each other. I'll be here to greet you. So he got up and he came.